sermon text for this morning is Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. I invite you to please turn there in your copy of Scripture as I read the text, as we progress uh, verse by verse through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Begin reading at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. As we consider these verses this morning, I want us to begin by thinking about the familiar story of Pilgrim's Progress. It was written by John Bunyan centuries ago. Uh, we had a Sunday school class in 2017 in which we studied this book together. Pilgrim's Progress is a story about a man named Christian and his journey to the uh, celestial city. And as you read the book, you see that on his journey, uh, Christian encounters uh, difficulties, and he encounters people that try to distract him or uh, to discourage him. And he also meets people along the way that are kind, people that encourage him and who help him in his uh, pilgrimage. And all in all, what we see is that Christian is a pilgrim who is progressing on his journey. That's why the book is called Pilgrim's Progress. Christian is moving forward in his journey. And there are times in the story when he's tempted to turn back, he's tempted to uh, take some easier path, but we see that as he progresses, he gains new insights and, and new joys and ultimately uh, completes his journey. And, you know, Christian's adventure in Bunyan's novel is, is really an insight into every believer's life. Because all who profess faith in Christ are Christians on a pilgrimage through this wilderness of sin to that celestial city, to glory. And the idea is that we're progressing, loved ones. We're growing. We're moving forward. We are maturing. And it all begins with our conversion, that moment in which uh, the Spirit effectually calls us from the state of sin and death, the state in which we are by nature, by birth, he effectually calls us and he enlightens our minds spiritually and savingly so that we can finally understand the things of God. And he takes away, we read in the scriptures, our hearts of stone and, and gives us a heart of flesh so that we might now desire the things of God. And he renews our wills. The Westminster Confession of Faith describes it as he makes us willing and able to trust in Christ for salvation. That's conversion. And what we read in the scriptures is that's the beginning of our pilgrimage. And what that beginning leads to is a lifetime of walking 
daily with Christ, of growing in Christ, of, of learning godliness. And this is what the Apostle Paul is referring to in these verses this morning as he points out that he is not perfect yet. Look at verse 12 of our passage. Paul writes, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then he emphasizes it again in the next verse, in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Well, notice in both of these verses that Paul is referring back to something he said. There in verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained this. And then in verse 13, he says, that I have not yet made it my own. In both of these verses, we see that he's referring back to the state of perfection that we will be at in the resurrection. If you look in the text, you look back to verse 11, you see there he ended by talking about the resurrection of the dead. So we see that Paul now says, you know, I haven't yet experienced the perfection that I will have at the resurrection. I haven't yet obtained it. I haven't yet made it my own. I'm still progressing in the Christian life. And so we might ask this morning, what makes the resurrection so special that Paul refers to it specifically as something that he has not yet attained? Why does he single the resurrection out in these verses? Well, loved ones, if we think about what happens to believers, and specifically to believers at death, we see that the resurrection is the final state of our existence in glory. Because what we read in Scripture is that the moment that we die, our souls immediately return to God. There's no uh, soul sleep or anything like that after we die. The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so the moment we die, our souls immediately return to God. And our souls are, and, and this is how the Westminster Confession of Faith explains it, our souls are made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory. Our bodies, our bodies, however, remain on earth and they begin to decay and to return to dust. But the Bible says that there will come a day when Christ will return and all those who died in faith will be raised up, that our bodies will be raised and our perfected souls will be joined with our resurrected bodies, bodies that have been raised to honor by the Holy Spirit and, and brought into conformity with Christ's own glorious body. So that is our future, loved ones. That is what we anticipate, perfected souls and perfected bodies. We will be like Christ, and we will be with Christ in glory forever. That's the reality of, of what our eternity will be like. But see, that's not our present state. It's not our present existence. And this is what Paul is emphasizing, that we have not yet achieved this perfection. We've not yet reached our final state of being. You know, that day will come 
And God will accomplish it all fully and finally in us, but it's still future. It's glorification that awaits all believers. But now in the present, in the present, what we experience is the process of sanctification. And this is exactly what we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, about what this present life is, is like, this process of sanctification. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, that by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the perfection that the writer of Hebrews speaks of here is, is the guilt of our sins that has been completely removed for, from us. In Christ, we see accomplished this by a single offering, right? It's not like the Old Testament sacrifices that had to be repeated over and over because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. The writer of Hebrews is very clearly, and we studied this book at length, Christ has perfected us. He has removed sin from us once and for all. In fact, in Greek, in Greek the tense is significant because it describes a past action with present results, something done in the past that continues to affect us in the present. Christ has perfected us in his death on the cross. He bore our sins, and that is our present reality even now. But notice in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, that the author speaks of those who were perfected are also those who are being sanctified. This is in reference to the ongoing work of sanctification in our lives as believers. See, having been declared holy and set apart for God through the cross, the Holy Spirit, loved ones, is now working in our lives. He's working to conform us to Christ's likeness. We are being sanctified day by day. And it's a process, the Bible teaches, it's a process that will never fully be completed in this life. Do you know that, friends? Do you know that, loved ones? And, and by know that, I mean, do you believe that? Because one of, the, one of the greatest dangers in the Christian life is to feel so frustrated with our sin, to feel so frustrated with our, our lack of growth, and to simply quit the race, to simply throw in the towel because we might feel hopeless. And so I want to encourage us this morning to consider how the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, often subtly, to draw us away from our sin and and to draw our gaze to Christ, to draw us away from our sin and to conform us to Christ. Because as we think about our lives, loved ones, and the process of sanctification and the fact that it will never be fully completed in this life, you know, what the Bible shows us is actually this ironic reality that the more we come to know Christ, as we learned in the previous verses in Philippians chapter 3, the more we come to know Christ, the more we will come to see our need for him more and more. The more we will come to sense our need to grow. This is actually see, a sign of Christian maturity, of Christian growth, as Paul refers to in verses 15 and 16 of Philippians chapter 3. 
The more we come to know Christ, the more we will come to sense our need to grow. And loved ones, what we, we see in this reality is that we therefore must be patient with ourselves. We are, again, pilgrims progressing. Let's not throw in the towel because, you know, we don't feel and I don't feel like we're living our best life now. That's not the reality that the Bible paints of the process of sanctification. Because sanctification, it doesn't look like a brick wall being built. Uh, there's a sound wall uh, being built recently on one of the freeways that I take to get to church. And, and you know how tall some of those sound walls on the side of the freeways can get. And, you know, every morning as I'd, I'd drive down the freeway, drive past the workers, I could see another layer of bricks being laid, and laid perfectly, laid nice and straight, brick by brick, layer by layer, I could clearly see the progress. And, you know, we might think that that's how sanctification works. That's how sanctification looks. Every day there should be consistent, measurable growth. And if there isn't consistent, measurable growth, well, there must be something wrong with us, right? So then let's forget it all and let's not even try. Beloved ones, the Bible, I said, pictures sanctification as a tree. And how does a tree grow? It grows slowly, but it grows surely. It's not like a brick wall that we can see going up step by step, layer by layer, perfect rows. No, for a tree, for a tree, some seasons it grows a lot, and some seasons it doesn't grow so much. Some are fast, some are slower. Some seasons there is a lot of fruit, and some seasons there is less fruit. But what we know is that there is growth, right? It's subtle sometimes. And not only is there growth above the ground, but there's growth underneath the ground. There are roots that are going down, that are spreading, that are being strengthened. There's maturity that can't be seen over time. And even under the surface, there's a lot going on underground that we cannot see as the tree's roots are reaching ever deeper and providing ever more nourishment. And so we must be patient with ourselves, always trusting that God is working in our lives by his sovereign spirit, loved ones, resting in that promise that he is sanctifying us, that we are pilgrims progressing. And we must be also patient with one another, parents patient with children who are also growing in their faith, husbands and wives patient with one another, not expecting perfection, but seeing how is the spirit working in this person's life and how can I come alongside this person and help them in their growth in their own sanctification. We must be patient in our relationships in our own church. See, rather than expecting perfection from each other, we should instead encourage one another in the Christian life. The Bible says we must be quick to forgive one another when there is hurt and, and when we see repentance because we are on this journey together as, as pilgrims to the celestial city, to that promised land that lies before us. The reformer, uh, Martin Luther, this is a quote that I included in last week's all-church email. Uh, Luther writes, This life 
is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. It's not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All that does not yet gleam in glory, it is all being purified. And so, loved ones, we are not perfect, but what we see in our text this morning is that we are progressing. This is what the Apostle Paul now explains. As he says in verse 12, he explains that he is pressing on. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The word for press on here is, is the word pursue. And Paul, through God's empowerment, is he's saying he's earnestly pursuing the resurrection life. That resurrection life, as we said, that all Christians will fully experience on that last day. And he gives us this imagery of a marathon runner, as we see. And it's the imagery that he refers to here. Loved ones, we all know what a race uh, looks like, don't we? A race has a beginning. And for us, the beginning of the race is... Uh, the conversion that we receive uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, where he changes our hearts and our wills and our minds, as we said. We are given new life in Christ by the Spirit. And then there's a middle to every race. For us, it's this life, the life of sanctification and growth in Christ's likeness. But we also know that every race has a finished line. And for us, it's when we will be with Christ in glory. And so at this moment, we are in the middle part of the race where we are pursuing holiness and, and godliness. And we are to pursue growth in Christ. And for Paul, as we see in the text, this was all consuming, all consuming as it should be for each one of us. You can even hear Paul's determination in the text, can't you? As he says, but one thing I do. Everything in his life was centered around this one thing, knowing Christ. And in order to do that, to run with such intensity, what we see is he had to forget the past and to look to the finish line, to look to the goal. Because no runner, we know, no runner is effective if he is constantly looking backward. Can you imagine seeing a marathon runner or a sprinter that is constantly looking backward? Can you imagine how ineffective that, that runner would be? And so Paul says here, you know, to run effectively, to, run, uh, to live the Christian life, we need to first, he says, forget what lies behind. Forget what lies behind. Now for Paul, this meant forgetting his past sins. It meant not allowing his past sins to hinder current progress. 
And, you know, when he says forgetting, I want us to be clear that he's not speaking about some kind of amnesia that, you know, he literally uh, couldn't remember his past sins. But it's more like throwing something in the trash. And, And you're just done with it. You throw it away. It's behind you. It's gone. It no longer has influence over you. And, you know, as we think about that imagery, I want us to think about Paul. You know, Paul's past sins could have crippled him in his Christian life. I mean, just, just caused him, could have caused him to wallow in despair and regret and sadness. Think about Paul, Paul's past life. He said there in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, right, speaking about his life before conversion, he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, Paul, as he thought about all of the Christians that he had helped to persecute and to kill, even watching Stephen being stoned to death and giving approval to his death, Paul could have shriveled up with guilt and despair. He thought about his past life. But Paul instead says, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on. Forgetting what lies behind. In Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there's this wonderful point in in Christian's journey where he uh, battles Apollyon. Apollyon, who is... um, pictured as as Satan in in the story. Bunyan uh, describes Apollyon this way. He says, Now the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish, and they are his pride. He had wings like a dragon and feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke, and his mouth was as the mouth of a lion. When he was come up to Christian, he beheld him, with a disdainful countenance, and thus began to question him. See that Apollyon began to question Christian's identity first. This is Satan's MO, right? This is his game plan. This is his strategy. As Satan tries to remind believers of our past, accusing us of our sins against God, this is exactly what Apollyon did. He reminded Christian of his unfaithfulness. And since Christian claimed to serve a new master, Apollyon, drew attention to his shortcomings in serving that master. In fact, Apollyon, you read in the story, he began counting on his fingers as he was listing all of Christian's sins. And he, at one point, ran out of fingers on which to count. We read Christian's missteps, and he dramatically threw up his hands in the air with a flare to make his point of just how unfaithful Christian had been. Loved ones, doesn't that remind you of Zechariah chapter 3, what we read several weeks ago, that passage in which Satan is accusing Joshua, the high priest, pointing out Joshua's filthiness before God. This is what Satan does, right? He is the accuser. And his weapons are what? Condemnation, fear, shame, guilt, bringing up the past. Well, Christian, we read, responded wisely by focusing on Christ's forgiveness. Christian said to Apollyon, he said, all this is true. In fact, there is much more that you have 
left out. Christian says, Apollyon, I'm actually much worse than you even think that I am. Christian goes on to say, but the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides these wrongdoings which I committed in your country, where I was brought up and educated in them, I have groaned under and repented of them. As a result, I have received a full pardon from my prince regarding these crimes. What did Christian do? He disarmed the accuser by confessing that his sins were far greater and that Jesus had already forgiven them. And that's what, loved ones, the Apostle Paul is referring to on our text, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind because we have been forgiven. Friends, are you dwelling on your past sins this morning? Are you dwelling on your past sins on a daily basis? If you are, they will trip you up. They will hinder you. You know, I am, as I read the scriptures, and I'm sure you, you experience this as well, I am amazed at how many assurances of forgiveness we have throughout the scriptures. We see that during every Lord's Day worship service. After we confess our sins, there is an assurance of forgiveness or an assurance of pardon. And every week, the verse changes, right? The Bible has so many assurances within it as the Holy Spirit inspired the text. The question is, why does God give us so many? Because, loved ones, we need to hear so many. We need to believe that we have been forgiven. We need to believe, as, as Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But as we think about what Paul writes here, forgetting what lies behind, for some of us it may be the guilt and shame of past sins, but we could also say that for Paul, forgetting what lies behind might also mean forgetting past achievements for Christ and striving daily to continue serving Christ. So it's not just past sins, but also past achievements and victories that can sometimes trip us up in the Christian life. Think about Paul as he's currently writing this letter from prison. He's writing to the Philippians. And notice in this letter that Paul's not, as one commentator puts it, he's not recounting all of his achievements. He's not distracted by the trophies of his past. You know, Paul's not like the, uh, the middle-aged person who's still dwelling on how cool and how great they were in high school, even though they haven't done much uh, since then, right? They just keep talking about how cool they were in high school. And every time you talk to them, they somehow steer the conversation back to how cool they were in high school. Paul could have had this attitude. You know, as he was sitting there in prison surveying all the churches that he had planted, surveying all of his many years of ministry, and now saying, you know, I have accomplished so much for Christ, so many great things. It's time for me to relax a bit and and rest in my past achievements. But instead, Paul says, no, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Loved ones, that 
language there of straining forward. It captures the idea perfectly. It's the image of a marathon runner with every muscle engaged, drawing on every energy reserve, and that runner is focused on the finish line, focused on glory with Christ. And Paul says, you know, I do this, I strain, I press on, I do this knowing that God loves me. And, you know, as we see this very active language in this text, this very active language of pressing on and of straining forward, you know, it might seem as though, hey, Paul, you're putting too much emphasis on what you have to do in sanctification as, as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Paul, it seems like your language is a bit too active. Right? So when we look at this text, loved ones, what we need to see is that Paul is not saying that it's all up to me and it's all up to you. We have to press on to strain toward it. It's all up to us. But look instead at these verses again and notice. Notice Paul's emphasis on God's sovereign work, especially there in verse 12. As he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, he says, I want to lay hold of Christ because Christ first laid hold of me. See, what, what underlies all our progress and sanctification, loved ones, is God's sovereign initiative. He is the one who began a good work in us, as we read in Philippians chapter 1. He is the one who has called us from darkness to light. He has renewed our desires so that we now hate our sin and love our Savior. This was all part of a plan that he established before creation. He loved you and me, we read in Scripture, before the world was made. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Loved ones, he has made us his own. He has laid hold of us. God loves us. The Father chose us. Christ has redeemed us. The Spirit is working through us. We are his own. And so we run now. One thing that we do, we are looking to Jesus as we run. We have our eyes fixed on him because he has finished the race. He is the one who has gained victory for his people. And so our eyes must be fixed on him. See, it's not about our performance. It's not about what we can do for God and add to God's glory, but it's all about God and his glory. Friends, this is the wonder of the gospel, is it not? That God loves us, that he has predestined us for adoption to himself as his children through Jesus Christ. All praise and all glory be to him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your rich and precious word. And we thank you for the sure promise that is weaved throughout Philippians, that the good work you began in us is a work that you will faithfully complete. 
Father, as we live on this earth, we pray for grace and strength to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Knowing that he has accomplished our salvation, cause us, we pray, to rest in the sure promise that where he is, we will soon be also. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.